This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've all seen it or experienced it, an aggressive driver tailgating or speeding, weaving through traffic, putting everyone at risk. New numbers from a federal traffic database show that per capita, Colorado ranks second in the nation when it comes to deaths caused by road rage and aggressive driving. The Auto Insurance Center broke down these numbers, and while they don't offer a reason why Colorado ranks so high, they do have us asking some key questions. For starters, how do you actually define road rage, and when does it rise to the level that you should call authorities? One man who's seen a lot is Colorado State Trooper Gary Cutler. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What kind of road rage have you witnessed in your years on the road? Um, it's it's happened a lot, uh, more than I would think it would. So one in particular was uh, I was driving down the road, watched uh, an individual that was passing another car. And he either just, you know, got a little too close when he went over, but it upset the person behind him enough that that individual zipped out past him and then got back in front of him and slammed his brakes on. You know, so this can cause a crash. So I ended up pulling both of them over and uh, talking with both of them to find out what was going on. The first guy just really didn't know that he'd cut the other uh, person off. But the other one was so upset that he wanted to prove a point and say, you don't do that to me. Well, while I was talking with him about this, you know, um, I did find out that the initial car that had inadvertently cut this guy off, he did have a, a gun in his car. And that's one of those things where people don't realize that, that there are people driving around that have, you know, guns in their vehicles. Now, he didn't get upset enough to try and use it or anything, but I did let him know that, you know, you have to realize that this is the kind of stuff that people have in their cars. And if for some reason you do upset them enough, you know, they could be provoked to use it. That if you escalate the scenario, it could turn out poorly. So is your advice fundamentally just let it go? It, it really is, you know, and if it gets bad enough, that's what we're for. You know, call us, let us know that that's going on, and then we can send people to assist in that. I want to ask you about when to report this kind of driving in a little bit. But connected to the firearm, I can't help but think of the alleged case of road rage in Westminster that made national headlines. It resulted in the fatal shooting of a 13-year-old boy and the wounding of several others. In fact, there was a fundraiser of the weekend to pay for the family's medical bills. And it indeed made me think of the mix of road rage and firearms. A Harvard study found that people who tend to travel in a vehicle with a gun were more likely to make an obscene gesture or follow another driver after an angry encounter in traffic. So there's a certain emboldening, it would seem, if people have firearms. They are. You know, it also helps with the car because they feel protected in the car. And now if you add a firearm to that, they think that they're invincible, you know, and that they can just uh, make the justice there. They they are the ones that are going to make the law there and prove the point. And that's one of those things where, you know, I don't want to say people shouldn't have, you know, guns where they would like to have them. But you have to realize you can't let that force your thinking to where you're going, okay, I have this as an option. It's interesting you say that the car in and of itself is emboldening. Because I think there are ways that we behave behind the wheel, behind all of that metal, that we would never behave if someone were face-to-face with us and we didn't have the cars in between. I do believe that's the case. You know, you get a lot of that. Fatal car crashes increased about 6% nationally from 2015 to 2016. That's the last year available. So 6% nationally on the increase. Colorado saw an 11% increase of fatal car crashes. You've spent years patrolling roads in the metro area. What are your observations about how common 
aggressive driving is. It's, I think you said earlier that you're surprised sometimes by how much of it there is. There is, you know, and, and one of the things is, is because we have so many people coming in, not just to move here, but for vacations, things like that. And we're also seeing other things that are starting to irritate people. Um, it's the, we get, uh, we like to call them the crotch rockets, but those speed bikes, um, they're getting around in groups and they're zipping in and out of traffic. So between all of these things, people are at their limits as to what they're willing to accept while they're driving down the road. When you say we've got folks from out of town, is it just people's frustration with, oh, this car doesn't quite know where they're going and a driver gets ticked off as a result? Is that what you mean? That can happen. Uh, it's just also that we have so much traffic on the road that people are trying to get somewhere. So nobody really gives themselves the time to get there. And if it backs up for whether it's construction, crash, whatever it is. Or congestion. It, yeah, you've got all of those things. And what happens is people's temper starts to go up going, I need to get there. I don't want to spend my whole life in the car. And why is somebody else trying to get in front of me? I think what I hear you saying is that this might actually be a function of the growth in the metro area. It is absolutely tied into it. Okay, to this question of when you make a call to law enforcement, when someone is driving dangerously enough that it warrants such a thing, what rises to the level of road rage? Well, it can be a lot of different things. So each person really looks at what their what irritates them, their pet peeve. Um, but certain things that have road rage, uh, one usually our biggest one is speeding. Um, the other is uh, changing lanes without signaling, following too closely. All of those can be road rage, you know, or cause that road rage. It's an aggressive driving that somebody doesn't want to do everything that's necessary to make sure everybody's safe around them. But the state patrol and any police department would just be deluged if I called every time that happened. We do get a lot of calls on this stuff, you know, and, and we still like people to call in on it because what we, we get is, you know, we will go in there and we can make the determination, was this really, you know, up to a level for a ticket or does somebody need to be talked to? Is it endangering somebody's life? You know, so... We will try to get in there and, and see what it is that they're doing. Is it that you suggest people document the license plate? Absolutely, yeah. What we like to know is what road they're on, what direction, what color the car is, uh, type, and then if you can get a license plate, that's great. But we don't want you to endanger anybody else or that individual trying to get that info. But it's so fleeting, you know, when someone just tries to cut you off aggressively. I, I just think the chance of catching that person is impossible. It's not impossible, but it, it is, you know, it's helpful. That's where we have the public helping us. So we will call people back when they've called us on our line and say, you know, where are you guys now? Can you still see the vehicle? And, and try to walk it towards the trooper. Um, we work in, in areas. We have areas that we work. So we, we have five districts in the state. Then we have troop offices, and then you work in individual areas. And so we have troopers that are, we'll call it stationed in those areas, uh, that are set up to, to help people when, these get, when we get these calls. Let's say that someone just is routinely driving poorly in this regard, and they've been called on five times over the last month or something like that. Do you start to compile this so that you build a profile of a particular driver and say, gosh, this really is someone we need to reach out to? We do. And we have actually. Um, we had a program that was set up where we went and talked to people. We gave them an official letter stating that they had been called in uh, one, two, three times, whatever it is. And we were here to talk to them and find out what it is that's causing this problem that they can't get along with the rest of the public that's driving down the road. You had a program. It sounds like that's defunct. It, we've we've lowered it. There are still some areas that kind of do it. Um, but we 
we spend a lot of time searching for uh, drivers and stuff like that and, and trying to find them home. So we try more now just to get it while they're on the roadway and, and help to where we can stop them when the act's happening. Was it a funding question? Of being it able wasn't to funding. Okay. It was just more of a time consuming. If someone is following me aggressively and sort of won't let go of the issue, what do I do? Is that when I should make a call? Um, what we can do, you, you definitely would never feel like you can't. So it's either the star CSP for the patrol, 911, either one of those will get you immediate assistance. Um, but you can go ahead and change lanes if you have that ability. Slow down, see if they'll pass you. Uh, exit the highway or the roadway. Um, if they're still following at that point, definitely make sure you call. Don't try and stop somewhere that, uh, one, doesn't have anybody around, and two, if they're following that closely, you may not want to stop at that point. But each situation is a little bit different. But trying to keep it to where you don't get into a situation where you are actually confronting each other one-on-one, face-to-face, because that's when we have the problems. Don't take the law into your own hands in this regard. Thank you for being with us. All right. Thank you. He's Colorado State Trooper Gary Cutler. When we come back, an early forecast of ski season. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Winter might feel far away, but meteorologists at NOAA have offered up their early take on what the season will look like. Joel Gratz is on it like white on snow. Gratz is a meteorologist and co-creator of the website Open Snow, which has a loyal following of skiers and snowboarders. He joins us from Boulder. Hi again, Joel. Hello. Looking at NOAA's winter forecast, what's the top line? Well, the top line is a weak to moderate El Nino prediction, which describes water temperatures in the central Pacific Ocean. And those water temperatures can influence weather patterns here in North America. And what NOAA is saying is that the weather pattern will be wetter in the southwestern United States and drier in the northwestern United States. And at least for NOAA's prediction for December, January, and February, that wetter southwest pattern would include Colorado. Would include Colorado. Wetter meaning more snow. That's what the forecast holds, or that's what the forecast says from NOAA. Uh, But as we've discussed for many years, uh, long-range forecasts are incredibly difficult and not all that accurate. Uh, But the El Nino effect is a well-known one, and at least tells us something, doesn't it? That's true. About a third of years are El Nino, meaning warmer-than-average water temperatures in the central Pacific. About a third are La Nina, which are cooler than average water temperatures in the central Pacific, and about a third are uh, neither El Nino or La Nina. And there are some correlations for our snow patterns in the winter uh, with La Nina and El Nino. But here's the rub, is that even general patterns, uh, while helpful overall, are not necessarily uh, perfectly predictive of what you're going to get in your backyard or your mountain range. And take last year, for example, 2017-2018, and it was a La Nina, and so the forecast was for more snow in the northwestern part of the United States down into northern Colorado. And while that's that forecast worked out reasonably well, uh, the heaviest snow stayed just to the north of Colorado, 100 miles, 200 miles. 
And that type of range, 100 to 200 miles, is just not predictable at time scales of three to six plus months. Mm. So while the general pattern sometimes is forecasted well months in advance, uh, it still comes down to tens to hundreds of miles to know if you're actually going to get snow in your backyard or your mountain range. Are you seeing any other supplemental information that makes you think NOAA's weather prediction is accurate, like the Farmer's Almanac or anything like that? Yeah, well, there, El Nino and La Nina is not the only thing to look at. Uh, there are many other uh, kind of oscillations and factors in the oceans and the atmosphere that uh, work to make the winter pattern what it is. And another one is called the PDO, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. It just describes water temperatures in a different part of the Pacific. The, the short story is that I'm slightly concerned um, this year that uh, NOAA is being a little too optimistic um, just because during weak or moderate El Ninos uh, in the past, we have not seen uh, the greatest of seasons. Now, weak El Ninos have been worse than moderate El Ninos. So if this El Nino actually does strengthen and the water temperatures warm a little bit more, uh, that would be a better sign. But we won't know that for the next couple of months. All right. Why don't you put these predictions into some context? How might they compare to what we experienced last winter? Absolutely. So last winter was not a great snow season for the majority of the state. The very northeastern part, kind of up around Rocky Mountain National Park, did have uh, near 100% average snowpack, and that extended down to uh, the Continental Divide down around uh, Loveland and Arapahoe Basin and Winter Park uh, skiers. But for the most part, everybody south and west of that uh, was well below average uh, for last year, and we're talking uh, 40, 50, 60% of average snowpack. So I joke with people that even though long-range forecasts are not very accurate, uh, there's a very good statistical chance that this season will be better than last <laughs> season for uh, for the majority of, of central and southwestern Colorado. And let's hope so um, because we can we can kind of endure one uh, you know one half fifty uh, percent average snowpack season. But if we start stacking them up uh, back to back, uh, that's when we get a little bit more concerned about uh, water supplies. How often do you talk about climate change on open snow? Because we, we know the planet's getting warmer and that affects snow. Absolutely. I talk about it some on open snow, but I try to keep uh, the forecasting on open snow limited to the next five to 10 days uh, for powder seekers. What I talk about climate change more is when I give talks to community groups out there and uh, and I do show them the data from Colorado, which shows clearly across the state an increase in temperatures of, a, of at least a few degrees over the last few decades, um, but no trend in precipitation. However, if you just uh, put those two things together, warmer temperatures and no trend in precipitation, that would argue for slightly higher snow levels and uh, potentially more rain versus snow at lower elevations on the shoulder seasons in, uh, in fall and spring. Well, thanks so much for being with us again, Joel. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. He's meteorologist, meteorologist, easy for me to say, Joel Gratz and co-founder of Open Snow. He joined us from Boulder. There are high-tech ways to detect wildfires, like aircraft, sensors, and there are low-tech ways, like fire lookouts, perches in the forest where a solitary man or woman keeps an eye out for smoke. These towers still play an important role across the West, which might come as a surprise. 
Philip Connors has been a spotter for 16 seasons and wrote about it in his book Fire Season. He's taking a break from his lookout in New Mexico's Gila National Forest to join us. Hi, Philip. Hello. Also with us is Kent Argo of the Forest Fire Lookout Association. It works to preserve these towers, which are on the decline. Kent thinks that that decline is counterintuitive, given how many people are moving into forested parts of the state, and that these towers ought to see more use. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Philip, 16 is a lot of seasons. What keeps you climbing the stairs of that Depression-era fire lookout? Um... Partly the chance to enjoy solitude in a beautiful place. Um, partly the communion of creatures in my neighborhood, uh, deer, elk, bears, wild turkeys. And partly the exorbitant salary of $14 an hour. <laughs> uh, you talk about the solitude. Others might use the term isolation or, or wonder if you get bored. Well... I do not get bored. There's plenty to see there. Uh, The sky alone is never dull. And, uh, you know, it's not like I'm there uninterrupted for half the year or something like that. I work 10-day hitches, so I'm there for 10 days. Then I get four days off to hike out and go back home, take a hot shower, drink a cold beer, reacquaint myself with the pleasures of civilization. So it actually ends up achieving a nice balance in my life, that 10-on-4-off schedule. Kent, at their height, I understand there were about 50 of these fire lookouts in Colorado. I think about 30 remain in the state, but only about 10 are used for detection today. I understand that one of your favorites is one of the ones closest to Denver. Take us there. Tell us about it. Uh, well, I have two favorites close to okay. Denver. Squaw Mountain is right above uh, Evergreen and is on the rental system. And it's a favorite of mine because I've worked on it a lot. And it's beautiful. And you can see Denver from the tower. Some of these have been converted essentially into like vacation rentals. One way of prolonging their lives, I suppose. A great way to keep them relevant and in good shape and, and enjoyed. Uh, Devil's Head is also a favorite of mine, which is south on the Rampart Range in between Colorado Springs and Denver, and is actively staffed uh, by a longtime lookout, Bill Ellis, who is a fixture there with his wife, Margaret, and it is just a beautiful hike destination. Uh, You can go and, and talk to the lookout and see what's been going on up there. They're just beautiful places to go enjoy. And so there's the tower itself, and is there an adjoining cabin or something like that, Philip? Tell us what the setup looks like. Yeah, at my particular mountain, there's a a tower 50 feet tall uh, with just a 7 foot by 7 foot cab on the top. So, um, you know, it's a little more than a Spartan office. Down below, there is a a cabin where I live and sleep and cook and... uh, you know, take care of my days. But um, some towers are live-in. You know, they might be a 12 by 12 or 14 by 14 foot cab. Um, I've always sort of envied those folks who live in their tower. Mm. But it it depends on the shape of your mountain and the kind of view uh, you need to have, whether they built a, a small cab or a large cab, you know, 70, 80 hundred years ago when these towers first went up. Yeah, let's talk about when these towers first went up. 
why? What prompted them? And and uh, I mean, obviously, their purpose was to spot fires. Uh, was there some particular prompting event, Philip? Well, the Forest Service really got into the business of fighting fire after the huge 1910 fires in the Northern Rockies, which burned millions of acres and took many lives of firefighters. Um, so the push to fight fires really got going after that, and networks of trails, um, telephone lines strung through the mountains, and lookout towers were the first sort of infrastructure that was put in place to quickly detect fires so that firefighters could jump on them quickly and put them out. So they've, many of them have been there for over a century. I read somewhere that carrier pigeons were an early method of communicating between fire towers and those who could fight the fires. Is that true, Kent? Absolutely. Okay. You think that they should play a bigger role today than they do in terms of fire spotting. Tell me why that is. Well, they're a method of detection that has been proven to work. And there are newer methods, sure, but... I don't believe that means taking proven methods off the table. And it is expensive to mitigate fires with planes and aerial flights every day and getting less expensive to have towers that are maintained where lookouts can go up. It doesn't have to be all the time, but on high fire danger days, maybe it's too windy for a flight, you can get a lookout in a tower that knows what they're doing. And yet, Philip, there are some who might think this is absurd. In other words, how much can you actually see from a tower, even the highest one on the clearest day? Aren't you only covering, you know, one patch of a vast forest? Give us a sense for the view up there and its ability truly to spot fire early. Yeah, well, I've I've seen a single lightning struck tree puffing up a little tiny smoke from 25 miles away. Um, I personally have a great view from my tower. Uh, and the thing to recognize, too, is that in a place like the Gila, where I work, there are actually 10 working towers. So there are 10 of us at all times stationed on mountains with our different views and our overlapping perspectives. And we communicate with each other when, um, you know, triangulating the locations of smokes and talking about weather and lightning. So we're not, we're not, in a sense, we're doing our work in isolation, but we're also doing it with a, you know, a cadre of colleagues who also have vast experience and great views from their locations. Kent, I understand the first time you ever spotted a fire was with your father. You were a kid at the time. I, I was. It was out in uh, in Washington State in the Okanagan Valley, and we were watching the uh, tripod fire burn. Uh, wasn't so long ago, about ten years ago, actually. Oh, okay. You weren't necessarily that much of a kid, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was an amazing experience. We were watching this this huge fire burn in the distance. Uh, I think it burned over a uh, hundred thousand acres. And uh, in the morning when we woke up, my father was looking around. We're in a 60-foot tower, L4, 14 by 14, really cool tower on Tunk Mountain. And he kept looking over away from the fire in the opposite direction. And uh, 
it was a hazy morning. There were some clouds around. It was beautiful. And he said he saw smoke. And to me, it didn't really look any different than the haze that was around from other fires or the morning kind of fog, uh, but ended up calling it in. And I got to sit in the tower and watch the whole process where a spotter plane came in and dipped the wing to us as he flew by the tower. An acknowledgement of the call you'd made. Exactly. And uh, then the smoke jumpers come in and throw the streamers out and the tools went out and then the jumpers went out and they and they caught the fire and put it out before uh, it was really a big concern for anybody. And that's the point here is that you intervene early so that you stop it from spreading and potentially reaching places people live and play. Right. Early detection is the key. If you can catch it early and stop it while it's small, it makes all the difference. Uh, Philip, I suppose you might have a biased answer to this question, given that you've done this for 16 seasons. But do you, too, believe that these fire towers ought to play a bigger role, perhaps, than they do, especially with so many people moving into these sort of forested city areas, what are called the WUIs, the Wildland Urban Interfaces? Yes, uh, I do, of course, and you're right, I am biased, but I've seen from personal experience just how much knowledge lookouts have about, you know, the history of where things have burned and the trails that may or may not still exist in the area and the ability to talk to firefighters and alert them to sudden changes in wind and weather, um, you know, a lot of my fellow lookouts have been at this for literally decade, decades, and they um, they have this vast repository of knowledge about the landscape that I don't think you're going to get from a drone, a satellite, or a high-definition infrared camera linked with pattern recognition software. Huh. The idea is that they really read the landscape. They know it thoroughly. And do you think that that actually makes them better than the technology you talked about there? Well, um, I think it just deepens what we can offer our colleagues in in the firefighting establishment. Um, It is true that a camera uh, never blinks or, you know, if you have four of them set up from a tower looking in all four directions, it'll never be turned away from a smoke at the moment it pops up. Um, on the other hand, yeah, that, that deep knowledge of the country and that, um, ability to communicate verbally with people on the ground by two-way radio, uh, gives us an added dimension that, um, all the technologies people talk about replacing us with, I just don't think we'll ever offer firefighters. Very briefly, Kent, there are towers in Colorado that are simply in decay, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, that's a lot of what we do is raise awareness about these towers and get volunteers together uh, who will come up and help rehab them and restore them so that they don't um, remain a burden to the district that they're on if they're not being used for fire detection. Thank you both for being with us. Really appreciate this. This view, the view from the top. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Philip.
My pleasure. Philip Connors is author of Fire Season, Field Notes from a Wilderness Lookout, and his forthcoming book is called A Song for the River. And Kent Argo leads the Colorado, Utah chapter of the Forest Fire Lookout Association. Before a recent game between the Milwaukee Brewers and the Pittsburgh Pirates, there was a ceremony with Boy Scouts, an American flag, and of course, the national anthem. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the The difference is, afterwards, the singer didn't retreat to the stands. Instead, Stephen Brault joined his teammates in the Pirates' bullpen. Brault is a left-handed pitcher who's as adept behind a microphone as he is on the mound. The lead singer of a California-based band, Street Gypsies, Brault majored in vocal performance at Regis University in Denver. And he joins us now before tonight's game at Coors Field between the Pirates and the Colorado Rockies. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. When I watch the video of you singing, which we'll post later today at CPR.org, the reaction shots from some of your teammates is interesting. I mean, a couple even looked like they weren't sure if it was really you singing. Did they know? Yeah, I mean, they, they knew, but, you know, there's a difference between going around and singing around the clubhouse. And I've played some of them, my, you know, my rock music that I sing, but... It's different, you know, when you go out and stand in front of everybody and hold the microphone and sing the national anthem and like a, you know, official or more official kind of voice. Oh. So they were definitely surprised, but I, it was cool. I mean, they were all so happy for me and reacted well. They were all nervous for me. They didn't want me to screw it up. That's, you know, <laughs> that's nice. I was nervous for you because I think of the national anthem as notoriously difficult to sing. Do you find that? And if so, what's the hardest part? Oh, yeah, it's really difficult. The hardest part is starting uh, at the right place. So I didn't have a, you know, a headphone in my ear or anything telling me where I was supposed to start. I didn't have a tuning fork. So it's just kind of going based on feel. And I knew I started a little bit high. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light? I was nervous for sure. I'm surprised uh, you don't consider those latter notes the hard part. I kept thinking, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? And then you did. Yeah, well, that's all based on how you start, you know, because the the latter part is the the harder part, the more exciting part. The most scary part is, and the rocket's red glare, because it's the first part that's really high. Not only that, but it's, uh, it's kind of out of nowhere, you know. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, yay, prove through the night that our flag was still there. I'm picturing you keeping a guitar in your locker in the clubhouse and your teammates coming up to you and making requests on a daily basis. Uh, or would management frown upon that 
No, I, I think they would they wouldn't mind. I think they'd like that. I I don't do it, but you know we have some other musical guys in the clubhouse. Gavin Freese plays guitar, and uh, some of the other guys are learning how to play. And Trevor Williams plays. So I mean, there's not it's not absolutely unusual hmm. to to have music as part of your life. I think of baseball as a really tradition bound game, um, where there are things in today's game that are literally the same as they were in the 1930s. Uh, music, right. though, definitely isn't as rigid. No. Compare and contrast baseball and music a little bit for me. You know, that's one of the things that has actually helped me in my career. I had a, a coach when I first got into professional baseball. His name is Alan Mills. And he found out that I did music. And uh, there was a part you where know, I was struggling a little bit. And he brought up the point that really, when it comes down to uh, a lot of the basics, music and baseball are very similar because, you know, you need to have a rhythm. You need to be able to stay consistent with what you're doing. And having, like, uh, a song in your head that works for you uh, can be really helpful for somebody like me who kind of needs that creative part of it. When you're frustrated or down in baseball, does does a particular song pop in your head? Not necessarily a specific song. You know, I am uh, I am a creature of habit, so I'll go back and and listen to music that I was listening to when I was doing well or something like that. This year I've had a little bit of struggle, so recently I've been going back and listening to some of the music that I listened to last year when I was having the, the year of my life. You know, that's like the musical equivalent of a fan that doesn't change the lucky game underwear, you know, so that the team wins. Right. Yeah. Uh, as yeah, we, superstition uh, in baseball is, is very real. Well, as we said, you're the lead singer for a band called Street Gypsies. I've been where I've been and I see what I've seen. A beggar's gonna beg and a liar cheats. But I always thought a love was gonna love. I guess not everything is what it seems. It occurs to me that when you finish a game... You might have a scrum of reporters come up to you and ask you about the win or the loss, and that feedback perhaps isn't quite as literal or direct when you get off the stage as a musician. Do you wish in music that there were a a very straightforward win or loss category? <laughs> um, you know what? I, I don't. I think that one of the things that make music so beautiful and art in general is that you're able to have so many different kinds of success. In baseball, success is, did you get the guy out? Did you keep them from scoring zero runs? This is as a pitcher, of course. And then music, after a show, it's like, well, we ended up changing up that solo a little bit, but you know what? It's okay. We have that musical openness you're allowed to have, that improv that you can't necessarily have in baseball. You have to have, there's a certain way to succeed. You're from California, where you had a very successful high school baseball career. Uh, and as we said, you attended Regis University. It's a Division II school. And you did that rather than, you know, one of the bigger college baseball powerhouses. Uh, I understand that that was in part because of music. Actually, that was basically all because of music. So coming out of high school, I was looking at schools to play baseball only. And I was looking at places to do music only. And nowhere would really let me cross over. I always go back to, there's a school, Santa Clara, 
that I was talking to the baseball coach and he asked me, so, you know, what major do you want to do? And I said, oh, I, I want to do music. He said, all right, yeah, let me, uh, let me get back to you, see if I can figure some stuff out. And I never heard from him ever again. So the problem is that the music and the baseball, the schedules are very similar to a lot of extracurricular after-school activities. And so there's so much overlap in time commitment. And I had a hard time finding a school that would let me do both. Mm. When Regis approached me, uh, it was the baseball coach that approached me first. And he said we would probably be able to figure it out. I was excited. I went to visit the school. We met with the music director, the baseball coach, and me. And we just hashed out all the details of how it would work. Wow. And uh, once we did that, I knew I was going to go there for sure. It sounds time-consuming. So uh, it, it was. There's a, there a lot of days, you know, wake up at 5, 5.15 to go to baseball workout, then go to class all day then go to baseball practice, then leave practice early to go to choir practice and get home at, you know, 9.15, 9.30 p.m. That, that happened a good amount, but I loved it. What's the balance today? Basically, the balance today is, you know, baseball season is for baseball. I'm focused on baseball. I'll do a few, you know, I'll go see some concerts or I'll practice guitar in my room, you know, at, at my house in the mornings. But, you know, it's focused on baseball. And then the off season comes around and we have, you know, about four months where we're able to explore other options in life. And that's when I really focus on music more. I like going to open mics and stuff like that. And sometimes playing a lot of times, just watching the the guys that I played in the band with the street gypsies, we get together a few times every, every off season, but they're all doing their own thing for real now, you know, following their music passion into a career. So we meet when we can. Is music your, I don't want to say fallback career, because you're, you're obviously in the big leagues, but um, at the point where you need to retire your arm, uh, at least for throwing, uh, yeah. it, does, does music become the backup? Yeah, I think so. I, there's, there's two things I really want to do after baseball, and, and one is perform music. Uh, but the other is I, I want to go into broadcasting. I've, I've always been a big fan of, of speaking and doing radio and doing TV and things like that. So that's something that I that I really look forward to to going into whenever baseball does end. You know, hopefully baseball lasts for a long time for me. But if it doesn't, I'm not necessarily afraid. I know I have other passions in life that I'm going to be able to pursue. So I'm okay. I got plenty okay. of time. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 26. 26. Yes, you've got some time. And I actually looked up the oldest baseball player in the major leagues, and uh, 49 seems to be the absolute end of it so there, oh, yeah. there's time and ahead that, and that's like somebody who played four forever yeah well to wrap up i want to say that when position players hit they have walk-up songs uh, music that means something to them uh what about pitchers what, what's your walk-up song maybe we'll end with that yeah my walk-up song uh this is since my junior year of college has been the song night call by kabinsky it's uh from the movie drive uh, with Ryan Gosling, and it's like an 80s power synth kind of suspenseful song. I, I love it so much. <laughs> Stephen, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. I'm giving you a night call to tell you how I feel. I want to drive you through the night down the hills. 
Stephen Brault is a pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates and a graduate of Regis University in Denver. He's also a member of the band Street Gypsies. The Pirates series against the Colorado Rockies begins tonight at Coors Field. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When we think about making a first impression, it's often about how we look, how we carry ourselves. But our next guest says how we sound, the language we use, can have just as big an impact. Tony Velasquez became fascinated with words as a boy. It led him to Metropolitan State University of Denver. And this fall, he'll head to Oxford University, yes, the one in England, for graduate work to immerse himself even further in linguistics. And Tony, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. How much of your work deals with stereotypes and the idea that we react to someone who has an accent or a certain way of speaking that might be unfamiliar to us? Well, you know, um, when a lot of people think of linguistics, I think that they don't they don't really get how it can apply to our lives. Yeah. And so stereotypes is one way that I think that it really applies to our lives. Um, attitudes toward languages and then the people who speak those languages are, are often very closely related. Sometimes it's even unconscious. We don't even realize that we feel a certain way about someone just based on the language they speak or the way they speak. Is there a way that has manifest in your own life or is there an example you could point to? Absolutely. Um, people, uh, for example, coming into a school building, I work at an elementary school, and people coming in there, they can be treated different depending on, on who they're talking to just based on how they talk. And so someone might speak to them differently over the phone, and when they arrive and they, they look different, then they might be treated differently in person. Okay, so that may be a function both of language and of appearance. These yes. things are mixed. Yes, absolutely. Language is, is just part of a, of a larger social matrix um, that we're always using to categorize people and define people in our environment. And this comes into play regionally as well. The person with a New York accent versus, you know, someone from Colorado. This is a way of mm-hmm. kind of identifying, are you are you friend or foe? Are you from here or from there? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. That's that's what we use it for mostly. And I think that's, that's the part of the brain that really um, has been around for a long time for us. We want to categorize people and know if they're safe or not for us. You'll be working on a master's in general linguistics and philology yes. at Oxford. Uh, focusing on something called sociolinguistics. Just tell us more about what sociolinguistics is. Sure. Sociolinguistics is the part of linguistics that uh, looks at language as it applies to our social lives. And so stereotypes is a part of that, language attitudes, how people change the way they talk based on who they're talking to or how they want to appear in a certain context. I've heard that referred to as code switching. Yes, absolutely. You can code switch not just between languages. Um, For example, a bilingual English-Spanish speaker might code switch between the two, but you can also code switch between uh, accents, dialects. What's an example you've seen of that? One, for example, um, I have worked with someone, an African-American lady um, at at my school, and she was very adept at code switching between what she would call her African-American English um, and her standard English. Did you ask her about that? Absolutely. And she was absolutely, um, she knew she knew she was doing it and she knew how to do it. Um, Unfortunately, she knew she had to do it because sometimes you can be judged negatively for how you speak. Depending on the group that you are addressing. Right. What is it you hope to learn at Oxford? What are you excited to dive into? You know, at Oxford, I'm excited to really become a researcher. Um, I think I became a good student at Metro, and I'm interested in doing all that I can to learn everything I can about language, um, especially focusing on sociolinguistics and see how I can apply it to to the world, see how I can bring it to, to regular people. I wonder how much we're influenced by words without even knowing it. Um, a young child goes to elementary school and, say, is given 
textbooks, mm-hmm. which includes, you know, words and context that may come from a particular point of view about that history, mm-hmm. whether political or religious. Yes, definitely. There are ways that when we speak, we might do things we don't even know we're doing. We might take agency away from, from an actor because we think we kind of agree with, with what they did, even if it was wrong. And we might give agency to someone else if, if we support more what they were doing. What do you mean? Well, for example, um, some Texas textbooks in, in Texas, they, they tend to... Um, dictate what goes in textbooks across the country because it's such a large market for textbooks. Um, So what Texas decides goes into textbooks often influences, you know, textbooks in Delaware or something. Yeah, that's exactly right, nationally. And so the language structures found there, a lot of times the writers, whether consciously or not, they would use passive voice to describe bad things that slave owners did to slaves in the past. And they would use active voice to describe all the good things that slaves supposedly had. Which is, in a way, taking away their direct action, their responsibility through language. Exactly. Just through language, we can take away some of the responsibility these slave owners had for what they did to those they owned. Responsibility. Another word for that you used is agency, taking away their agency. Exactly. They take away agency. I wonder if there are ways you have not corrected, but changed your own speech or choice of language, having gone into this field, Mm -hmm. because you've been made aware of implicit bias or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I consider myself adept at switching between different um, dialects, for example, different accents. And uh, depending on who I'm speaking to, if I think that they want to hear a certain thing or maybe speaking to them a certain way, especially working in a school, it'll calm them down. Maybe if I if I speak a different way, I use that. Give me an example when you do that. For example, um, when you get upset, you tend to use more informal language. And so me, if I feel myself getting a little ruffled uh, by a parent coming in talking to me about what we're doing wrong, okay, I might very uh, forcefully make sure that I'm using very standard speech um, so that it doesn't escalate the situation. So that the words you choose can actually help avoid you going down like a path of, of flying off the handle. Is that what I hear you saying? <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And not just the words you choose, but the way you say them. Give me an example then of that. Sure. Talk to me as if I had just ticked you off. What would you do to keep yourself calm? Sure. Uh, first, I would definitely try to use, again, passive voice. I would say, this happened, maybe, or something occurred, as opposed to someone did this or that. <sighs> that especially helps when you're talking about um, a parent's child. Taking agency away from them might calm down the situation. As, saying, as opposed to saying, Sally did this. Mm-hmm. You describe the actions. This happened. Exactly. This happened. And not only that, but instead of using more common terms, I might try to use what you might consider more academic terminology, things like uh, this incident occurred, Mm. as opposed to Sally hit Johnny. That's fascinating. (laughs) You are fluent in Spanish and English and have studied other languages as well, some German, French, Mandarin. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating about Chinese. We were talking Mm -hmm. just before we went to air that there is not... Uh, tense reflected in verbs. Is this in Mandarin? Yes, in Mandarin. Mandarin Chinese. Meaning that in English, we signal if something happened in the past by changing the verb itself. That's not the case. How do they signal when something happened in Mandarin? They just use particles. And so the little particles that don't don't attach to verbs, so you might think that we use work versus worked, talk about past and present. Yeah. In Mandarin, they don't have that. They'll have have a particle at the end of the sentence that kind of gives you an idea that it's already happened. Have you had the experience of finding a word in a foreign language, another language that you wish existed, 
in English? Yes, definitely. Um, Spanish, for example, has a lot of words that it's just one word to express what we need a whole sentence for in English. One word to express. Give me an example of that. For example, um, in Spanish, there's a verb, aprovechar, and it means to take advantage of. To take advantage of. And so uh, you see how many words you need in English for yes, just indeed. one word in Spanish. Uh, I have to introduce you to one of my favorite yes. words. Please do. In a foreign language. I read this actually in the back of an airline magazine, and I have verified its veracity. But in German, I think it's pronounced Backpfeifengesicht. Okay. <laughs> have you heard this? No, no. What's it mean? This is a word that means a face yearning to be slapped. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that that's a good example. The, the idea that some faces need to be slapped. I'm not advocating any slapping by any means. Right. I understand that one of your favorite authors is Ernest Hemingway, mm -hmm. which surprised me because his style is so spare. Yes. What is it about Hemingway for you? For me, you know, it's actually that Hemingway, he, he doesn't use certain things and that's on purpose. And so in language, the things that you don't say are just as important as the things that you do say. And that's why I think that I really like his spare style. He doesn't need flowery language. He just puts it right out there. And it means something because it's lacking something. And that means that some words have perhaps more punch than someone who might choose to use more of them. Yes. Yes, exactly. Thank you for being with us, Tony. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. Tony Velasquez, a graduate of Metropolitan State University of Denver, also author of the blog The Linguist's Notebook. He's now off to Oxford. Thanks for listening to the words coming out of our mouths today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.